Blog Talk Radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. Well, welcome to the Wealth Psychology Hour with Jamie and Emily. We are so excited for today's show and uh, can't wait to jump in. We also want to do a shout-out to uh, Gail Sylvia, the founder of Sylvia Global, because this is a really blessed time for her family. She now has two new grandchildren that were born about a month apart. Last one was born just this weekend. So congratulations. We love, love, love to have new wonderful family members to get to serve and support and, uh, you know, invite into the world that we just love so much. And here we are at our show. Jamie, you are here from Israel. Good morning. And then we have, yes. Good morning. And then we have two phenomenal guests that we're so happy to have on our show today. And uh, they are the authors of the new book, The Cycle of the Gift. And they are Susan Macenzio. Susan, where are you in, located at the moment when we're talking? Boston, Massachusetts. Boston and Keith Whitaker. Where are you, Keith? I'm sitting next to Susan. Oh, how wonderful for you guys. We're so jealous. <laughs> I'm here in San Francisco area, and uh, we are delighted to be having a conversation about family wealth and wisdom when it comes to uh, giving gifts, large and small. And uh, we wanted to start off this conversation by making sure our listeners know that this show focuses on the emotional impact of wealth in people's lives. And we have this uh, interesting juxtaposition in this world where people receive gifts, people want money, people strive for success, and then when it's achieved, the, uh, the, the way that the world sees you, the way that the culture depicts you, tends to have a tremendous impact on who you are and how you um, then can move in the world. And our goal is to really change that negative cultural impact and make it as positive as possible so that people can be as um, able to thrive in their lives no matter what their financial circumstances are and where the most good can happen in the world for the most people. So we're really thrilled to have you both here because of your incredible research for people and supporting them and being able to thrive even more, even when wonderful extraordinary gifts show up in their lives. And uh, you two uh, have background similar to Jamie, yes? You're both uh, doctors of psychology with a, with an emphasis on the wealth psychology. Yes, Emily. Thank you. And, yeah, thank you for being here. And um, Susan, would you start us off by letting us know how you came to this field? What is it that brought you to this field? Certainly. Um, I'd like to underscore something you said at the beginning, that um, my work right now truly focuses on 
applying psychology to ensure as much as possible that wealth has a positive impact on the individual, the individual family, the greater community, the individual cares about, and the world. So I just want to underscore, Emily, as you began by saying that it's moving away from the negative, looking at wealth as um, having many negative complications and framing it more positively. So again, I'm a psychologist, and interestingly, when I reflect on my own journey, and I look back at the very beginning of my journey, the work I did then was working with families with children with special needs. And when I think about that and connect it with the work I'm doing now, it's so important to think about families at the core and wealth as the secondary factor. So when I reflect on my journey, it truly is looking at what the factors that we know from psychology help us flourish as individuals and as families, then attending to the special needs that wealth surfaces for us. So my journey, as I said, started with families focused with children with special needs, and then I spent several years working as a university professor, teaching psychology and family dynamics. And from that, I transitioned to corporate America, where I worked with executives and leadership teams, again, around performance, organizational design. And from there, I began to work with heads of families. Um, again, the key principles that connected all of my work had to do with psychology, and how to use the knowledge that we know from that profession to enhance people's lives. Thank you, Susan. Keith, can you tell us a little bit about your background for our listeners as well? Sure, Janie, and and thank you to both of you for uh, inviting us to join the show today. We're really glad to be here with you and your listeners. Uh, so I'm not a psychologist. My background is actually in political science. Uh, so my doctorate is in social thought from the University of Chicago. And uh, my so my first love was really uh, political philosophy and studying in particular how individuals and families define themselves through property relationships. Uh, so I looked at that in the ancient world as well as in more modern thinking, and taught political philosophy for many years at uh, Boston College and elsewhere. However, at the same time, I was very interested in and active in the world of philanthropy, so not so much the acquisition of wealth, but thinking about how through giving uh, to charitable causes, people could have a positive impact in the world. And so through my teaching and through activity in philanthropy and setting up foundations and working in charitable organizations, I found myself being drawn towards working with other families and individuals and thinking through their own charitable goals. Uh, And inevitably, it seemed that as I started talking with people about their philanthropy, things would come back to their families as well, that the focus on giving to, to the larger community was always tied together with what's the impact going to be on my children, my grandchildren, our family's legacy, our reputation. So those things that our tax codes often separate very sternly between giving to others and giving to your own 
are bound up so closely together in people's emotional lives that it was it was felt very artificial not to be dealing with both together. So I ended up uh, following that path into the world of uh, family offices and, and multifamily office companies and using my teaching skills to help build programs uh, for clients and family members around how to uh, better manage, understand, clarify family legacy and the impact of wealth on families' lives. Uh, so that's the, the general course of the work uh, for me. I think if there's any way to, to summarize it, it would be that what I, was clear to me from my philosophic studies and teaching and so forth was that the, the dilemmas that we deal with, the problems we deal with, don't lie in the things, in the property, in the money, or the wealth. They're really in our own souls that we have to work these things through. And so that's why in approaching, whether it's education or writing this book, uh, in working with colleagues, uh, Susan and I really do focus uh, on that psychological aspect or on the relational aspect in people's lives and how to help them clarify and really flourish in those uh, more so than the financial or material aspect. So let me stop there and send it back to you guys. I love that piece that you said, Keith, because it really um, shifts um, in a significant way, and and Emily and I make such a point of speaking of it in the same way on the show, the shift from looking quantitatively at how much and um, what vehicle to qualitatively. Um, What is the... um, the how are you living? How well are you living? What's the qualitative experience? And um, I think that's some you know a unique approach that the four of us share, and particularly unique about your book that it not only focuses on the qualitative side, how well are you living, but it also looks. I, I found this extraordinary, and I'd love to hear how you guys um, came to this aspect of the book. I love that the book also focuses on receiving the gift. So often in this domain, I think the conversation is about preparing people for um, receiving an inheritance. It's about the giver and the act of giving. And what I like about your book is also the act of receiving and what it feels like qualitatively to be in a receiving position. Um, again, I found that very unique, and I'm curious how you came to that, and also very happy that you guys did come to it because I think it was a real missing piece. Mm-hmm. Well, it, we came to it from many, many conversations with clients and then our own deep reflection to realize that the recipient truly needed an opportunity to have his or her needs addressed. And in doing that and helping, that would ultimately really help the giver clarify his lens in terms of what he was trying to achieve and coming to know the recipient better in a relational way, which ultimately is what we see as core to our families, helping to enhance the relationship and giving the recipient a true voice was absolutely essential. And just to add to what Susan was saying and, and what you picked up on, Jamie, which really we did see as a core strength of the cycle of the gift, family, wealth, and wisdom that we wanted to accentuate, that 
so much of our culture emphasizes and celebrates giving. As you know, the common saying, everybody loves a giver, or it is better to give than to receive, that there's such an emphasis on giving as the activity that's worthwhile that oftentimes receiving is seen as almost something of a stigma, that receiving is passive. It's something that's done to you that you may not deserve, right? I mean, there's a, a, almost a prejudice against receiving. And so we really wanted, as Susan said, to give the recipient a voice and standing in this book and look at the topic of giving within families as one that is, as the, the title says, a cycle that is circular, that, that the giver gives, the recipient receives, but there's also a giving back and a sense of connection and relationship that's built through giving so that we could say that being a receiver is also an activity that's worthwhile. It takes some work. It takes some preparation. Um, that you can feel good about receiving well. It isn't just something that's done to you. So we wanted to really share stories about that, share practices that would help prepare recipients to be active parties within the, the cycle of the gift. It's, it's so interesting. I, I know that our listeners understand this, um, but so often I'm struck by how um, other people don't necessarily understand this. I have people say to me all the time, oh, I should only be so lucky to need your services, you know, that they would like nothing better than to be in the position of being an inheritor, receiving an inheritance. And yet, um, as the four of us know so well, and I think, again, as listeners um, will identify with, it, there's a lot of um, ambivalent feelings that come with it. And there's just, I find, and I'm curious to see um, what, what you found in your research in doing this and, and um, the results that you came up with, I find that um, there's a real lack of understanding by the general public of what it means to be on the receiving end of a gift. Um, and in your analogy, the receiving end almost of a meteor coming at you. So, you know, maybe you can also talk about that that imagery as you discuss um, what, you know, what other people said in, in the research of the book. Yeah, well, no, you're exactly right, Jamie, and, and we certainly have seen that in many families that we've worked with. You know, in the research for the book, there are a couple of different elements that I think would be helpful for listeners to be aware of. I mean, first, this book had predecessors in the form of, for example, our co-author, our colleague, our friend, Jay Hughes' book, uh, Family Wealth, that appeared a number of years ago that was really groundbreaking in focusing people on the human elements of wealth, the human and intellectual capital. So we certainly drew from Jay's experience uh, with many families and, and uh, his research. Another book that I think is really a precursor to this one or companion to this one is uh, Charlie Collier's book, Wealth and Families, uh, that I think you shared uh, on the website as a companion to the cycle of the gift because Charlie's own experience was with many donors um, around philanthropic giving and its impact on family life and vice versa. So from both of those great repositories of wisdom, uh, we learned and also, in our, in our work, 
what we do is we don't only consult with families and work with families uh, around their particular relationships. We also do broader research through Wise Council Research, uh, the public charity that we set up to pursue uh, this line of inquiry. And so, for instance, we uh, had a grant from the University of Chicago to look at the world of wealth counseling, uh, the, the, the field of advisors who are advising families around these emotional or, as you put it, the qualitative aspects of wealth. And so we talked to, you know, over 100 different folks who were working with thousands of families around this to learn what they had learned from that activity. So all of those different repositories of knowledge flowed into, into this work. And certainly from those many different sources, we get that confirmation of what you pointed to, that it really that most people don't understand the power of the meteor, that is, the power that wealth can have when given from parents and grandparents to children and grandchildren. And I'd say the misunderstanding is about both aspects uh, of the meteor, both the impact it can have on the one who receives, uh, but also the impact that it can have in a positive way upon those who give that by thinking really clearly about what impact you want to have through your giving, about your values, about your vision for yourself, as well as your family, as well as the larger community, how enlivening that can be. I think, sadly, many people don't recognize how positively powerful that can be, and so they miss an opportunity uh, through their giving to really flourish uh, in that way. And... Uh Jenny, what I'd like to add to what Keith just said is a simple word, empathy. The reason I'm adding that word is one of the critical outcomes from the book that we're hoping for is that it increases empathy for both the recipient as well as the giver, a true understanding of where the other is coming from. And your question speaks to the general public, assumptions, interpretations, judgments, wishes regarding individuals who have wealth. And the book with the stories within it, we hope captures in a thoughtful way a sense of understanding of another, what it is like to have wealth what it is like to be the recipient of a gift, what it is like to be a thoughtful giver. So our book is truly an invitation to the reader to go deep within himself, whether he or she is a giver or a recipient, to better understand himself as well as the other. Susan, this is Emily. I'm so grateful you said that. Uh, you know, when I think about why we chose to uh, take the risk and have this show on the air for the general public to really bring out this conversation, this this taboo conversation in a lot of ways, and and ask people like yourself to come on and really open up this conversation is because uh, uh, if we continue as we have been with how people are perceived in the general public and also within families around 
this whole notion of giving and receiving and how we move with wealth, we, we're going to keep going in this direction of this divisiveness we're seeing more and more in um, the U.S. and in the world around the haves and the have-nots. We saw it play out so strongly in our most recent election. And it's it, it's so disheartening that you know, Jamie and I are really passionate about what can we do to change this whole cultural meme around this. Like, it doesn't serve anybody to, um, you know, as Keith was saying earlier, have these judgments, have these prejudices against people who are recipients, who have accumulated or received wealth, especially when everybody, in a sense, wants it. And if we if we hate, if we vilify, if we if we have tremendous ambivalence about it, how can we actually have it be something that flourishes and then does good in the world in ways that are really sustaining for everyone? And so that would be the larger context in which we're having this conversation. And you know, Keith, for you to come at this from a philosophical, grounded perspective in terms of historical, it's very exciting. It's, it's, this is not something that's new. This is not something that uh, is unusual. And it's about, wow, how do we really change this report? And when we found out your book was coming out, we just had to have you come on the show. So, uh, Jamie, you want to jump in with the, the next question in terms of how we're going to move this conversation forward? What I would love, Emily, is if you could um, let's get some questions going too from the audience. Can you remind our listeners different various ways that they can call in um, and contact us with their questions? Definitely, definitely. Thanks, Jamie. I got so excited we jumped right in. So if you're listening to the show and you want to join in our conversation, you can call us directly at three four seven two one five six one three eight. Again, you can call in at three four seven two one five. 6138. You can also email your questions to listeners at sylviaglobal.com and you can post your questions or comments at uh, Facebook at the Sylvia Global page and we will respond to those either on the show or afterwards. And uh, really grateful for having this conversation. Thanks, Jamie. I love when you do that part because all of those um, various ways to call in uh um, I always forget, and you keep them right in line. So I always appreciate when you do that. Um, and then I get to ask the question. Um, we've been skirting, not skirting around it, we've been talking about it, but I, I want to really laser in because, you know, the time is so precious. Keith and Susan, what are the key challenges that you see families facing around giving within the family? You can just even bullet point some really um, key challenges that, you know, got repeated over and over again in your research. Okay, one that comes up over and over again is fair versus equal. Uh, giving uh, where the differences among the recipients are understood and people getting very challenged with, even though the needs may be different, life circumstances may be different. Uh, wanting to give in a way that respects that, but very fearful that if the same amount is not given, there will be serious consequences. So that concept is one, fair versus equal. The other would have to do with blended families and giving within blended families. Communication between two givers, let's say, in a situation, husband and wife, how to get clear in terms of what the goals are when there are 
you know, differences that are significant in terms of values, expectations, um, very much underscored with blended families. So those would be the two I would highlight. Then the third would be grandparents. And when grandparents want to give, the giving in a thoughtful way that incorporates the parents of the grandchildren. Oftentimes we see issues surfacing when grandparents make decisions regarding their giving to their grandchildren and for a variety of reasons have not included the thinking of their children, the parents of the grandchildren, in that discussion, and that can create some serious ramifications. Oh, can I jump in here? Because, you know, I'm totally passionate about the blended family conversation. And I just, you bring to mind that I saw both of those things happen in a, in a blended family I worked with where uh, the parents were being so deliberate and it, this is a little bit reversed, about how they wanted to make sure that the fair versus equal got taken care of within their system where they had two children from a, what the husband's prior marriage and two children together. And they did a ton of work to get really clear about that, and they were so excited to share it with all four of the children. They were all adults and let them know what their thinking process was and in, include them in terms of, you know, now that we've come up with the structure and you understand why we did it the way we did you know, what is it you see here? The older two uh, from the prior marriage spoke from a place of gratitude and understanding uh, because then it gave them grounding for what they needed to do for their planning around their kids that were just getting ready to enter college, whereas mm -hmm. the other two, the younger two from the, the second marriage, uh, they didn't, neither of them had children, and they were looking at completely different life circumstances in terms of what was being uh shown to them as what was going to happen well into the future at the time of the second death of the, the younger stepmother um, and, and their mother. And the older kids said, this is so great. Now we know that we need to plan not just for our retirement and how we're going to live because we want you to live a long life, but also for our children and their college. And the parents looked at each other and they looked at them and they said, we just never even considered giving during our lifetime to take care of our uh, grandchildren as well and uh, and their education. And that set up a whole other conversation around um, setting up intentional trust for the grandkids' education. So having these conversations within the family can open up new possibilities that hadn't been considered. And that's another reason I'm so excited about what you all are bringing in terms of not just the challenges, but how you can keep, you know, approach them. Keith, did you want to um, add what you see as well in terms of key challenges? Well, sure, and, and just on that point of blended family, since it is something that we all care so much about and is such an important part of in many listeners' lives, that that's where we've found you know, having that kind of process, as you described it, of communication and reflection so important. Uh, that's in the cycle of the gift. We actually use a process that Charlie Collier first described really three steps of having you know, individuals and couples reflect first on their own goals for their children and their children together as a, as a family and getting real clear about where the differences might lie between them regarding children from past marriages or children from pre uh, present marriages and getting clear together about that first and foremost, which is so important when, when you have children from different unions. Then, secondly, taking what you have thought through 
to your adult children. And perhaps that's in an individual conversation with each, or perhaps even an individual conversation with that child's biological parent and that child, to really share the thinking and get some feedback so that it's not so much here's what we have decided to do and it's going to come down the pike whether you like it or not, but really here's where we are, here's what our best thinking is, but we'd like to hear your thoughts too and really invite that conversation as it sounds like your clients did. And then third, going back and reflecting on what you learned from your children, seeing if that leads to any revision in your plans or additions or subtractions to your planning, and then making sure to take your final thinking or at least your present thinking as, as it's developed back to your children so that you close the loop on that communication. And we've, we found that having that kind of process, as Charlie described it, as we describe it in the cycle of the gift, as you're living it with your clients, is so helpful in that kind of complicated situation to help people get clear about all the different variables in themselves, in their relationship as a couple, and in their relationship with their different children. So I think that's really a place where, um, you know, offering that kind of advice and living that process can be so helpful. So in addition to the topic of blended families, I, I guess what I would point to as a key challenge is the one which we've alluded to, and I, I know, you know, listeners, whether one comes from great wealth, whether one's made some wealth oneself, whether one is, is dealing with just, you know, getting by in life, the ch key challenge of really what do you say to your children when and how about your aspirations for them and any desire for giving to them. That's something that we see in all sorts of families arise is that concern that if I share more now in terms of information and, of course, too, in wealth, that I'm going to demotivate my children. But on the other hand, if I don't share information now, then my children may go on, make choices, you know, pursue careers or interests that they might not have chosen to do if I was helping them out or indicating to them that they had some support in the future. So I might be denying them really worthwhile choices by not sharing information with them. But again, on the first hand, I might be denying them or demotivating them by sharing information. So that's a key dilemma that we see arise in almost every family because it comes from that place of parental love, of not wanting to harm our children through giving them wealth or giving them information about wealth, but on the other hand, not wanting to snatch away possibilities from our children that they might have been able to pursue if we had shared more information. And it's so remarkable, too, you know, having been on the other side in my conversations with inheritors, it often feels like um, I, I hear the frustration from the inheritors. They don't know how to accurately plan their future. They very much want to be fiscally responsible and not make any assumptions, but in the vacuum of a conversation, they don't know what they should think about providing for their children in the future versus perhaps what might be a gift from, from their parents, um, for example, college. And it makes budgeting really difficult. And there's already so many, I find so many um, assumptions 
about the lack of um, responsibility sometimes of inheritors, but it's really quite um, havoc-making when you don't really know. You know, they know what they're earning at the moment, but they really often, because the conversations haven't been had, don't know what the future holds. So it's hard to make um, wise decisions. Yes, and Jamie, there, what we're speaking to is communication, and Keith and I encourage our clients to communicate more rather than less. That whether it's the process that Keith outlined in terms of how to communicate, it's at core communicating. Because our clients, for the reasons you just shared, and Keith shared, are so hesitant and anxious when it comes to communicating within the family because it is so important and they want to do it right, concerned about consequences, and there are no roadmaps. So it's the thoughtful planning, but erring in the side of communicating more rather than less is, that, is what we always encourage. Well, thank you, Susan. Okay. This, this, this is something I just want to make sure our listeners know that they can join into this conversation and communicate with us as well. If you're listening and you have something you want to ask or share, you can call us at 347-215-6138. You can email us at listeners at sylviaglobal.com. And you can also post your comments at the Sylvia Global page at Facebook. Jamie? Well, I love the advice, Keith, that you were speaking of in terms of the cycle um, from the perspective of um, the first generation of the wealth. We like to call it M1 as opposed to G1 because, the you know, the family doesn't start where when the money starts. Um, I'm also curious, and I, and I get very loud and clear, Susan, that, that one of the key messages of the book is greater communication um, amongst family members. I'm wondering if you can give our listeners um, some tips about if you are in that M2 generation or further down and you want to start the conversation with your family, with your um, parents or your grandparents about the money but are feeling uncomfortable to bring forward that communication, how you might be able to really – um, start that conversation in a way that's received well and not looked down on as, um, you know, looking for, for money. Okay. Well, again there, Jenny, we would have some simple guidelines. First, we would ask the individual to get very clear regarding the goal. What is he or she trying to accomplish? So we'd ask them to go deep and get clear. Then we would ask several questions regarding the individual they want to have the conversation with. So we would try to help the person really understand how best to approach the subject, what would be heard, and to do the planning in, again, an empathic way. So clarity of goals, and then how best to make sure their questions and their messages are heard by the other. And, you know, I just would add here, uh, Jamie and Emily, just a, a couple of examples. Um, you know, one young man uh, that I worked with was aware that his grandfather 
was paying for his college tuition, yeah, which is a, a not unusual form of planning that folks recommend uh, because people can make payments for educational institutions uh, without tax consequences. So, so this young man knew that his grandfather was paying for his college, and he had a sense that there was wealth in the family, but certainly didn't want to push for information in his early 20s there that would have been seen as uh, inappropriate. But what he did do was made a point of just being grateful, of saying thank you, of sharing with his grandfather how he was doing every semester, and acknowledging that that gift was being made, which, you know, surprisingly doesn't happen a lot of times, not because people are not grateful, they usually are, but because there isn't that even awareness that the gift is, is taking place, that the tuition is being paid for by, by grandpa. And so in this case, you know, his parents had shared with him that that was the case, and then he took it on his initiative to, you know, really express thanks, you know, write a note each semester, share with his grandfather what he was learning, what he was, how he was doing in grades and classes. And that, even though his grandfather was pretty reserved, that really helped kind of make the meaning of the money clear, that it made clear that something was happening through this gift, that this young man was growing in various ways, and that allowed over time the discussion to take place with, all right, well, what about the rest of the money that I'm thinking of giving? You know, what would be possibilities that it could have a similarly positive effect? So that's, that's just one example I'd share. Another example that came to me recently was of a family where there's a family business, and there's a couple of children involved in the family business as adults, a couple who are not very active uh, parents who are managing the business, um, you know, still in, in, uh, in their older age. And so in this case, even though some of the kids were involved in the business, they really don't have a sense of the overall wealth. They don't have a sense of any succession plan. And everybody kind of knows that that's a problem, but it's not put on the table in any direct manner. Again, not because there's conflict or the people are bad people, but it's just hard to talk about these things and not either appear controlling as a parent or demanding and greedy as a child. And so in this case, with this young man that has a good relationship with his parents, is doing well in the business, but he turned to me as an outsider, uh, not in the family, to say, you know, would you be interested in talking with my dad about the succession plan for the business? And I, my response was, I'm sure happy to talk if he's interested in talking so that it doesn't become something that he feels like it's, a, it's an end run to get at him. And so I said, why don't you encourage him uh, that we'd be happy to talk, we can have a conversation together about what he would find useful in thinking through his own plans for the business and as well. And there was a lot of anxiety on that young man's part about what his dad might do because his dad is a pretty strong character. But in the end, we put together that phone call, and his dad found it so helpful to be able to talk about these things which were on his mind too, and he didn't really know how to address them and how to move forward. And so I would just say for other folks who are in that young man's position in that second generation, that sometimes having somebody from outside the family help to be a catalyst for the conversation can actually bring forward things that are, that are not just beneficial to you in the second generation, but which 
parents or grandparents can really find help get things off their chest that they didn't know how to move forward with. Keith, that's so well said. Thank you for saying that. And, you know, it's interesting when I think about when I wrote the estate planning for the blended family with Paul, we made a point of including 11 researched fears of what keeps people from having these conversations and doing their planning. And, you know, this is such a huge one that you were just saying in terms of um, the fear of how you're going to be perceived and even bringing up the conversation because you're stepping into this, like, I would liken it to an emotional landmine field of, you know, all of these different potential, oh, my gosh, if I step in a way that that triggers that fear of mortality or of being obsolete or that that it's going to explode in my face and it's better to not open up that conversation at all. And I think so much of it is not knowing how to have the conversations effectively. And, you know, Susan, you said that earlier in terms of communication. And it's having those skills to be able to have that conversation that makes all the difference. And, yeah, bringing somebody in who can facilitate the conversation would be so helpful for everybody because they can have a sense of, oh, this person can help us have the conversation so it won't explode, it won't make it worse, it will actually further our connection and further um, align us going forward so everybody can be on the same page. It's really so useful. And I wanted to go back to what you said about the young man and the the grandfather because I have a very personal experience with that where uh, when I was just just applied to graduate school and I was getting ready to look at loans and uh, my grandfather received an unexpected inheritance from a cousin of his and he chose because he had never expected to get this money. He didn't have any need for it. He chose to be passed through, and he gave it to his three grandchildren. And uh, we each received this inheritance unexpectedly through him, because he received it unexpectedly. And I chose to use it to pay for my graduate school and um, a, a car to get me there really effectively, because it was a commute from where I was living. And then all the rest, I used to travel to see my grandparents as much as I could that year. I went for all of my breaks. I was in Texas. They were in New York. And I that year, I went and visited them a number of times. And uh, soon after he made that gift, his health started to deteriorate pretty rapidly. And I ended up having this incredible year with my grandparents that I never would have had. And it was totally from a place of gratitude and I let them know, you know, you made it possible for me to come here and you made it possible for me to go to graduate school without any stress and I totally would share my classes with them and let them know what I was learning and I also got to assist my aunt who was their primary caregiver uh, right when there were some major crises happening and their health challenges both of my grandparents and I look back at that time and when I think about the cycle of the gift it's exactly what you guys are talking about his choice to give that to me allowed me to give back to them in ways I never would have considered and I never would have had the capacity to do at that time. Uh, and it it was so beautiful in the whole family dynamic as a result of that. And I uh, would love to hear more from you all in terms of how you've seen that cycle showing up with people you've worked with or in your research that have enlivened people's lives. Like, I mean, that's my story. I'm wondering what else you've seen. Well, Emily, the story so captures the spirit of the gift, what we speak to in the book, that your grandfather's gift was so much more than money. 
it was the spirit of that gift, his caring, his genuine concern, the value he had in terms of education and wanting to give to you with spirit. And you engaged in the cycle of the gift and gave back with such spirit. Oh, thank you. That's so well said. And I think if people can really drop into that as they're listening, they can get a sense of, my gosh, was very it doesn't it doesn't have to be a huge sum. It can be even a small thing that in the spirit in which it's given can have such a ripple effect in how the whole family experience is. Um and the bigger the sum, the bigger the amount, the greater the impact it can have. Did you find that in your research at all? Like that uh, that there was a certain difference depending on how the the extraordinary nature of a gift versus a smaller gift, or did it, it was it pretty much universal no matter what? Our research has shown it has more to do with the spirit in the giving than the amount. And I'd like to take a moment, too, and underscore the cycle of the gift in terms of the larger cycle of life when we speak about recipients and givers, that one of the themes that it just prompted us so to write this book had to do with the cycle of life, and that if we think about that, we all come into the world as recipients. We receive in order to survive initially, and as we grow through school and our early college years, as well as our early careers, we are recipients from teachers, of gifts, from mentors, gradually learning to give back. And then as we approach a stage in life where generativity takes hold, our desire is to become givers and to give back. And then as we get older, and certainly in our very elder years, we once again become recipients. So it's the cycle of life in many ways. And that giving and giving with spirit is so important in perpetuating that cycle of life in a powerful way. Oh, thank you for saying that. And uh, we have a question. Uh, and want to make sure our listeners know that they can call in with a question, 347-215-6138, or they can email us at listeners at sylviaglobal.com. And this question for you all is, at what point point or age do you recommend to start opening up that conversation with your children? Uh, it's so wonderful to be talking about, okay, we need to communicate it, so when and when do we do it? And we can also talk about how. Well, sure. Well, I think the key there is, of course, what is it that you're seeking to communicate, right? So that there's a, Susan, do I was also going to add, it's what are you going to communicate and who are you communicating to, really understanding who that child or young adult is and what is their capacity to hear what it is you're trying to communicate and how best to communicate that. So go ahead, Keith. Right. So what do you want to communicate? Who is it that you're communicating to? What's their ability to receive the information? Um, certainly, we get that question all the time. When should I tell my children about the wealth? Well, there's probably five steps before telling them about, quote, the wealth in the whole sense um, that, would, that you'd want to have take place. So even as very young children, there are ways 
that you can talk with them about purchases to learn about money, its use, savings, evaluating value, all of those good things that go into financial literacy and financial skills that would come long before sharing investment statements or trust statements and so forth. So that's, I think, an important part of the message for people to feel in control and not feel afraid of the conversation, to reflect that there are many things that one can do, even with young children, to help prepare. Now, as children get older into their teenage or college years, what we often see is that, unfortunately, laws prescribe that they have to receive certain information if, say, they're beneficiaries of a trust at age 18 or 21 or something like that, at precisely the time that many young people are seeking to find their own way in life to become separate individuals, separate some from their families. So it creates a dynamic within a family of wealth where children are often seeking to separate, but they're also kind of getting pulled back in various ways because of legal structures. So in those cases, what we try to help family members, parents, as well as the young adults do is recognize, all right, what is necessary but also, what is really going to appeal to this young person at this stage of his or her development? Many families, that's maybe more a philanthropic activity of becoming involved in a family foundation or donor-advised fund or, or parents' own direct giving that may appeal to that young person's desire to have a positive impact on the world, to create change, um, and it is also then a vehicle for learning about finances, learning about charitable giving and its impact in the world uh, in a way that's developmentally appropriate. And then going further from there, at each step, always listening and learning from your child, from young childhood up through adolescence and young adulthood, to see really how does this child learn, what is this child's temperament and character, what is going to really be received best as far as learning goes. Um, because it will differ for different different children. Right. And key words there, developmental stages, what are the needs of the child, and also um, a concept that we find very helpful for young children is the concept of sufficiency, enough. We have enough, and therefore we're also in a position where we can give to others. Because for young children, it's there where we're beginning to instill the values which help form character. And it's the character development that we believe is critical to helping recipients incorporate, integrate wealth into their lives so that it has a positive impact on them. So we, again, would, in answering as specifically as we can that question about when do you communicate we again would err on the side of thoughtfully communicating sooner rather than later because we too often see, again, the anxiety that parents have regarding their fears about the consequences of the wealth on their children. They procrastinate and they put it off. And in some cases, parents even err on the side of almost trying to live a life that really underscores the fact that they don't have wealth, trying to offset that. So what we're encouraging is earlier communication, developmentally appropriate, 
incorporate that concept of sufficiency, we have enough, and develop character over time. And then the actual amount will come when it's appropriate and what it needs to be, both legally, et cetera. Thank you both so much. I think the, the key word here is really around communication, and I want to see if you might be willing to come on again in the future to have a, you know, a more focused conversation around you know, some specific tools around um, the, the communication, developmentally appropriate communication. Um, but as we close the show, I'm very curious um, and we'll get to our um, our tools, but I want to hear quickly, with the cycle of the gifts, clearly I can see that you guys have um, received as well as given within, um, you know, creating this book. And I'm wondering right now, what's your vision going forward for the book and the work in this area? Because I think it's so important. Well, I'll speak to that first, Jamie. So I think it's it's helpful to know that our own goal in writing this book, besides wanting to learn ourselves and really enjoy a journey of thinking together and with Jay and with other colleagues like Charlie with whom we spoke about the book, that our real goal was very simple, that if we were able to touch the soul and the spirit of one reader out there who hadn't come upon these ideas before and for whom the thought and the cycle of the gift would really be helpful. That was enough for us. That was really our our image in our mind as we wrote this book, to have that one reader find this and really benefit from it. And it's been very gratifying over the last couple of months to get notes from people we didn't know, to see comments about the book where it was clear that it has had that effect uh, on many different readers, not just one. So we feel very good about that goal. From going from here, uh, we really see this as something that leads to further conversations just like this one, whether it's with other professionals or with families, that we wrote the book in such a way that it wouldn't just be a how-to manual, although there are many you know, specific strategies that people can follow, but, all, but really something that would be a source of reflection and ongoing dialogue. So we, we see ourselves as continuing that conversation, using the book as a foundation, whether it's in venues like this or with groups of family members, say, that have been organized either by their uh, you know, advisors or by charities that they believe in and care about and want to have a conversation together as a community about the impact of wealth in their lives and on their families and on their charitable communities. So we're going to continue that conversation and, of course, continue to learn as a result of it. Uh, and we're very much looking forward to that. So let me, let me pass it over to Susan see if she wants to add to that. Oh, I would say that the journey for me has been a journey in which I've learned so much, um, a humbling journey in some ways, uh, because... The more I explore, the more questions I ask, the more I realize over and over again how complicated this is. And for me, therefore, it's been an opportunity to learn, grow, as well as give. So I'm hoping that continues. 
Oh, wonderful. Well, we definitely want to continue this conversation with you all. Thank you so much for being here. And we want to make sure we give our listeners um, our closing evocative questions, inspiring invitation, and useful tools because this is a coaching program and our goal is to really take whatever we've heard and take it into action in our lives. So evocative questions for our listeners to think about is, As you think about your future giving, what is the most important work you need to do to ensure that you give wisely? And I just love that notion of how do you thoughtfully give a gift? And then our inspiring invitation is at some point over the next week, take 10 minutes to think about what your own plans for giving are, what your goals are in giving, and in what ways those goals reflect who you are. And it's such a wonderful way to tie your values to your valuables. I just love that. Thank you for that inspiring invitation, Keith and Susan. And we want to make sure everybody knows the most useful tool we can recommend from this show is this new book, The Cycle of the Gift, by Susan Vicenzio, Keith Whitaker, and Jane Hughes. And um, is there a website that specifically... uh, about the cycle of the gift, or where would you like people to go to learn more about y'all and your work? Oh, sure, Emily. Uh, well, probably the easiest is just to go to our website, which is uh, wisecouncilresearch.com. There's a page about the book, about various other things that we've written and done. Uh, but again, wisecouncilresearch.com is probably the best place to go to further learn and, and I hope continue the conversation. Great. And then we also do recommend Charles Collier's book on Welcome Families. And um, we also want to make sure people know that if you want to take a deeper dive into this conversation, either individually as a recipient of a gift, uh, an inheritor, that we are doing our next respect portfolio at Rancho La Puerta with more information coming about that. And we're also going to be doing a mother and daughter event around that too. So really looking forward to keeping these conversations alive and making it so people can flourish in their lives. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, really um, want to ask you to take this into your day and may this show be the start of a great gift for your day. And um, this was a real gift to have you both here. Thank you. Thank you oh. both so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's great being with you. And Jamie, what a gift to have you on the call. Thank you, Emily. Great to be here with you. Yay. Thanks so much. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guest. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City.